everybody, and welcome to another episode of Natter the Zillennial Podcast. I am your host, Natalie, and we are joined today by my good friend of many years, all the way back from elementary school, actually, Matt Buglis. Hello, Matt. Hey, how's it going? It's going awesome. How are you? Good. Good, good. Would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're up to these days, these wonderful pandemic days, Um, and what our topic will be? Yeah. Um, Well, like I said, I'm Matt. I'm uh, currently in Saskatoon, studying at the University of Saskatchewan, uh, business and computer science, and I'm hoping to get into medicine next year. And today we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons. I love it. Okay. Um, first question, not a serious one. Will being a doctor make you a better Dungeons and Dragons player? I think so. It'll really help me describe the action and dramatic sequences so much better with experience. I I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Hopefully. Who knows? Okay. Okay. Well, let's get right into it. Um, (laughs) Can you explain to our listeners what the basic premise of Dungeons and Dragons is? A lot of people know that it's this old game. Um, and that nerdy people of their childhood played it, but they don't know why it survived so long. I am talking to you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so the main Dungeons and Dragons is in a type, is in a genre of game called tabletop role-playing games. So instead of being played on a board or on a computer, it is played primarily in the theater of the mind uh, with dice and different stats or on your character sheet paper uh, being used to represent randomness or chance within the game. There is one player who is the dungeon master or the more general term for the genre is game master. And they are responsible for crafting the narrative and walking the other players through the narrative on whatever epic quest, be it saving damsels in distress, uh, breaking into castles, political intrigue, espionage, piracy. Who knows? The (laughs) world is your oyster playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's kind of like real life, only you kind of have a bit more control over it. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> how many people um are usually in each game uh generally there are it is optimal to play with between four to six players plus the dungeon master any less than that it gets um it's very difficult to really accurately create encounters from dungeon master perspective because you try to make sure that the monsters don't absolutely wipe out the party of Mm -hmm. players and um any more than that it can get kind of boring as uh you kind of experienced when we played a wee bit in high school we had 12 people and we could couldn't get through a round of combat Yes, Um, we'd have like an hour for lunch and we'd go to our games club and you wouldn't even get a turn because two people would just be monopolizing all the time and then it would be lunch, lunch is over and then you'd just be like, okay, well, that was, that was poopy. Didn't like that at all. Yeah. So that's why the four to six is the optimal range of 
um, fun. Yeah, mm -hmm. optimal range of fun. That's a good way to put it. And what's the most important thing to have when choosing who to play with? Because I know when we played, um, everybody was like super into the game and really having a lot of fun with it. But it got to that that point where it just it wasn't the original group anymore. We had 12 people. Um, and some of the imaginations just didn't really coexist, I guess, like different personalities didn't jive well. So what do you look for when choosing a group? Well, when choosing a group, there are kind of two two main things uh, that you're looking for in your other players is one, everyone has the same level of commitment for the game. Like as long, because a lot of people will try to play, like you could try to play like a couple times a week, once a week, twice a month, once a month. Um, so as long as everyone is happy and with the same level of commitment, like everyone's like, yeah, we're all good to play once every two weeks. We're all busy. Um, and we feel that that's going to be uh, good enough for us. So that's really a good, that's the first thing is same level of commitment. So you don't have some people being like, I want to play more. And everyone's like, I like literally can't because, you know, life. Some of us are med students. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then the second important thing is everyone having the same kind of idea or goals about what the game should be. Because um, there are three main components to the game, which are adventuring, role play, and combat. And adventuring is like going through the forest and trying to track bandits or thieves or anything like that. Uh, role play is actually being your character and interacting with NPCs and other things um, throughout the story and then combat is fighting other things and so if some people are like really really into role play and that's all they want to do and they don't really like combat um, they tend to clash a lot with perhaps other players that want to like they like combat they like the numbers and rolling dice and all that stuff and throwing fireballs and swinging axes and swords mm -hmm. and stuff but they're not really into the whole role play aspect of the game. And both of those are fine as long as everyone is kind of jiggy with how the game is set up and what balance of the three aspects of the game are there. Mm -hmm. And with that, I suppose having a good dungeon master is very helpful in knowing how to balance everybody's strengths and what they actually want to get out of it. For sure. Um, it's definitely a big role of the dungeon master is to listen to your players and make sure that they're all having fun. They're enjoying things and getting feedback on what they'd like to see either more or less. So you can find a nice middle ground to make sure that everyone is having fun and enjoying themselves. And how much power over the game does the dungeon master have? What are all of the things they have to do to make sure it runs smoothly? I know this is a huge question. <laughs> hey, hey, some of those listeners yeah. don't know. They need to find out. So, and this is kind of like, so we're going to get a bit into the D&D history here. Um, in in the 80s, the big reason why D&D was kind of repressed in the public eye was this whole idea of, it was called the satanic panic. And so people thought that 
because these players are engaging and basically giving up their will to the dungeon master and are at the whim of the dungeon master that it was um, worshiping or uh, in promotion of Satanism. And with, especially in uh, lots of places in the United States that had a heavily religious bent to them, um, that was, was a very scary thing, which is why Dungeons and Dragons really took a hit in the 80s during that. But for anyone who has been a dungeon master, it's your job is to present a situation and then improvise with whatever the players decide to do in that situation. Because there is no way that you can possibly plan for every scenario. Right. One of my personal experiences with this, when I was brand new Dungeon Master, I think this was our third session about a year and a half ago or something like that. And my players were approaching kind of like the foot of this castle or stronghold. Mm -hmm. And it was in a pre-written story. So I had been spent a couple hours reading through the section, the chapter. And then I dove in. I was like, okay, if they go around the castle counterclockwise, there's these doors and these guards standing watch. And if they're seen, then the guards will go in and do this and that. And then if they go clockwise, then these happen. There's these different things. I'd spent about a solid four hours planning out what I thought was every single possibility. Mm -hmm. But of course, this castle was old and had partially collapsed. And when I described that to them, one of the players was like, when you say partially collapsed, like how partially collapsed? I was like, <laughs> the there's like parts of the second floor that are caved in um, and parts of the walls are kind of just basically rubble. And they're like, we're going to climb up the rubble onto the second floor and then drop down from the ceiling into one of these rooms to go in undetected. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> sure. <laughs> throw all those plans yep. yeah for anybody who can't see our video call right now matt just threw away his invisible papers right <laughs> yes uh yeah like plans go out the door so you can't plan for anything so the dungeon master uh is in charge of giving the players scenarios and then reacting and improvising with how with what the players decide to do so that they have agency which is kind of the big draw of dungeons and dragons is that as a player you can you can't do whatever you want you can try to do whatever you want right and then the dice and the dm uh, will determine your success or failure depending on the difficulty of your task mm -hmm. so let's get into the materials that are needed slash not needed i've heard from two camps where some people really like having um, all the figurines and things to really get into the game. And some people don't even use um, any of the official Dungeons and Dragons books. They just like to write their own stories, make their own characters, and they're on their way. So what are um, the material options people have? So the most basic thing that you, every everyone at the table needs, or you at least need one of at the table, is the player's handbook. Um, it's the it's the red book with <laughs> a big giant on the cover, and it is 
it is all of the rules that it's all the core rules that you need as a player and most of the time as a dungeon master when you're first starting out especially if you're following along with a pre-written story that you need to start playing Mm -hmm. it goes over backstories character creation it has all the basic spells in it uh, basic rule sets if you get the player's handbook you're ready to go I would recommend if it's your first time being a dungeon master to also to, well, first of all, to get the starter, there's two starter kits. There's the starter kit Mm -hmm. and the essentials kit. These are boxes that come with a pre-written story, all of the monsters in the back of it, a set of dice and what else do they come with? And pre-written characters. So you're, okay. you buy the box and you're ready to go. It's a good way to get into it because it's less or around the same price as one of the books. But then you don't need to go and make all your own stuff. And be overwhelmed by how much stuff there is to imagine for yourself. Yeah. And so it's a good way to get into it. That's how we started. I bought mm-hmm. the starter kit, which has an adventure called The Minds of Fandelver. And so we played that and we decided we all like this. And then I went out and got some more books, mm-hmm. which included the player's handbook. But yeah, player's handbook and either the essential kit or the starter's kit are your core uh, things that you need and some dice. Right. Going on to off of that as a dungeon master there's another two books you should get one of them is the dungeon master's guide which has um structure in it and shows you how to make stories how to build encounters how to create magical items it also has like 80 pages of just all magical items mm-hmm. um and it teaches you how to homebrew effectively because it's very easy to make things unbalanced and so having that as a guide is very helpful even just for inspiration say random tables are like oh i don't know roll a dice oh that's cool i'm gonna i'm gonna make a story off of that yeah and then there's the monster manual which is a bestiary one of the basic bestiaries of the game and You'll need that or the internet uh, if you're going to be doing any adventure other than the starter or the essentials kit. Mm -hmm. Because as I had said, the starters and the essential kit have all of the monster descriptions and stats in the back of them included. Mm -hmm. However, pre-written modules or campaigns like things like Storm King's Thunder, Curse of Strahd, um, those stories, they will only have custom or story specific monsters in the back. And then they will just reference other types of monsters, which you will then need to look up in the uh, monster manual or online. Right. Because there's a whole world around this that has been thought out since its first release was in 1974. So <laughs> it's been years and years of people coming up with monsters, coming up with characters to draw from and just basic lore to base uh the setting upon i suppose let's talk about dice 
that's mm. important material. Uh, what kind of dice are there? And what's, what's the big deal with everyone having their favorite set? So uh, <laughs> you're speaking to a bit of a dice goblin. Uh, <laughs> Love it. That'll be the title of the episode. Ma- Matthew Bliss, Dice Goblin. Dice Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Dungeons and Dragons, uh, like all ta- most tabletop role-playing games, work off of a set called a polyhedral dice set. So it has a 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, and 20-sided die. And then there's also a percentile die, but we'll get into that later because it's not used very often. Um, And so each of those are used for the primary, sorry, I should start. The primary die that you use is the D20, which is why whenever you see Dungeons and Dragons memes, you always see either a 20 or a 1 representing the best and the worst that you can uh, do. You'll use the D20 for about 90 to 95% of everything that you do in Dungeons and Dragons. And then the other dice are for things like damage or some random effects, but those are mainly used from a DM perspective. Mm -hmm. And then the percentile dice are two 10-sided die, except one of them has 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 on them. And then the other one has one, two, three, four. So you could roll it. And if you roll a 60 and a five, you've rolled a 65. And so it's just, it's an easy way where you're like, oh, I don't know if I should say, let's say, for example, players are running through a big city being chased down by police officers. And one of them dashes away and bursts through a door to try and hide in an old abandoned uh, warehouse or something like that. And so you as a dungeon master did not plan what is in every single house along the route that they could take. Right. And so you might say, okay, there is about a, 90% 90% chance that that place is going to be abandoned and they'll mm-hmm. be able to hide there. And then there's the other 10% might be that there is actually secretly police in there getting ready to ambush the party. Mm-hmm. And so you would get them to roll a percentile dice if they rolled a 90 or below. So let's say they rolled an 80. Okay, they're under that 90% chance. Then, yeah go ahead and hide but if they got in lucky you roll like a 95 or something they burst in and there's like 30 police officers in there all getting ready to charge out the door yeah. and then the story continues on from there but those are uh you don't use the percentile dice too too much mm-hmm. i love the idea of dice because the dm is god in the game but at the same time they're not because they do not know what the dice are going to be the dm could have a bad dice rolling day and the campaign just kind of all swings in the player's favor because that that's what the gods of the universe decide (laughs) that's the way the dice were rolled and it's just such a clever way to make a a game totally unpredictable for everybody Mm -hmm. what does your favorite set of dice look like my favorite set of dice are a set of metal dice. Ooh. Um, and they are each, I'll show you the camera and I'll describe for the audience. Um, and so they have a gold plated um, edges and numbers. And Very then af- 
and half of the numbers have a black backing and half of the numbers have a white backing. Yeah. They're nice. Oh, I love <laughs> do them. Do they make so you much. feel lucky? Oh, they do. And just <laughs> the weight. Cause like you roll your dice all of the time. And so mm-hmm. there's just something so, and there's like a big obsession with metal dice mm-hmm. uh, throughout the community. It's just like the weight and the sound of rolling a metal die is just, it's, it's very um, cathartic. <laughs> There's something just substantial to it. Like so much of this game is up in the ether, in your heads, in your imaginations, that to actually have something grounding you to it is nice. It's like your weapon. It's it's what you bring into battle. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And then if you have multiple of them, if one of them is being bad that night, you can put it in dice jail and not roll it for the rest <laughs> of the evening. It's like you rolled two ones in a row. You're going into dice jail now. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Okay. Um, oh, I think a good thing to cover for people who don't know anything about the game is what is the basic setting? Um, and what are some of the, I guess, influences that uh, created D&D, made it what it is? Ooh. So all the way back, D&D, and which kind of goes in, I'm sorry that I kind of missed this, um, with the whole either having figurines and things on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, D&D started, was created by a gentleman named Gary Gygax. And I can't remember what the exact game was called, but his um, kind of inception of D&D was to have a more fantasy version of tactical um, military games. So Mm -hmm. in the 70s and before, there were lots of board games, but you had like this massive like room sized battlefield setup basically and you would move cavalry cannons soldiers and different types of pieces around oh dear hello hello can you hear me now i can hear you hello i can hear you okay good oh you're good okay uh can you just hello (laughs) pick up from the beginning of that i guess Okay. Check, check. So the antithesis uh, of Dungeons and Dragons, which uh, I'm sorry to have missed your question earlier about the whole maps and miniatures and things like that. The antithesis of Dungeons and Dragons was in strategic miniature warfare games, uh, which the founder... Of, or the creator of Dungeons and Dragons, I should say, Gary Gygax, um, was a fan of. And he wanted kind of a more fantasy version of this. So instead of having tanks and cavalry and infantrymen on a battlefield, he had like wizards, clerics, soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where it started, which is why Dungeons and Dragons is very is more tactically focused in its combat than a lot of tabletop role-playing games, Mm -hmm. which is why people have the miniatures because a spell description will say it has a range of 150 feet. And from a point with that, within that area that you choose explodes out a 20 foot diameter fireball or sorry, 20 foot radius fireball. So then you have to think, okay, how far away is everyone from where I am? Where are all my friends? So I don't catch them in the fireball. Mm-hmm. How wide does that sphere actually go? 
yeah. which is why people have miniatures. We don't have miniatures because we're university students and can't afford them <laughs> <laughs> and also don't have time to paint them. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to have them, they got to look nice. Yeah. So we use an online application called Roll20, which is for free and it's a digital map. So you're going to have either grids or hexagons on a picture and then move your characters around and measure the distance and have all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not quite as fun or as maybe entertaining as seeing these full painted sets of massive dungeons, but it gets the job done and it's free. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> speaking uh, of characters um oh sorry did you have more to add to that uh no but i was answering one of your other questions oh yeah i know i, I uh, write the setting so many into one question so go for it no problem right so this is getting to the uh setting now uh and so when that started the first setting in dungeons and dragons because it's gone through a few of them in each edition of dungeons and dragons uh, either goes to a new setting or there is a significant event in the world that happened to bring out this new edition. So currently we're in the fifth edition. In both first edition and advanced or second edition Dungeons and Dragons, I'm sorry if I got those mixed up, other Dungeons and Dragons people in the world. <laughs> um, the setting was in Greyhawk and this was the very first setting, it is also where some of the most well-known Dungeons & Dragons stories like Ravenloft, which was revamped to become Curse of Strahd, which deals with vampires. Cool. Um, yeah, it's super, super creepy and dark. <laughs> I love it. Um, th that's where that takes place. And so over time, the setting has changed. In 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, the main setting is in a place called the Sword Coast, in a continent called Faerun. And so that's where most of the stories in fifth edition take place, either on the coast or just off of it. And then they've also published other area, areas, settings, uh, including Eberron, which is kind of a very, it's a high magic setting. It's very steampunk and there's these sentient rope half, clockwork half magic robots called Warforged. Super cool. Yeah. And then they've also partnered and co-published uh, with many other authors that are uh, big names in the Dungeons and Dragons community uh, and published their things they've created. The example of which is with Critical Role's Dungeon Master, uh, Matthew Mercer. His Wild Mount... Yes, his Wild Mount setting was published in a book called The Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount. And so that's the story that they, as a Dungeons & Dragons show, uh, play in and interact with. And so though there's other settings uh, similar to that, but the main one is the Sword Coast. So what's important in a setting, especially if you as a DM are trying to create your own, what are the main things you need to have? Well... It really depends on who you are as a dungeon master, as an author, and the kind of things that you want to have in your world. And so there's no, like being, like really any work of literature or being an author, there are no rules that you have to follow mm -hmm. other than those that you set for yourself. Yeah. 
because it is Dungeons and Dragons for the most part. Um, it, I consider to be in the genre of hard world building. So these are things like, for example, Lord of the Rings. They are massive, or it is massive, I should say, because it is so detailed. Tolkien took very deliberate exercise to make sure that everything lined up, everything was chronologically accurate, things happened for a reason. Um, there's a reason why Gondor wasn't there when the Westfold fell. Um, and so as a Dungeons & Dragons author myself, for the standard setting that my players will play in, it's hard world building. So there's a there's like a creation story because there's often relics or powerful magical things that happen later in the story that relate to either the creation or civil wars that happened in the world. There needs to be, it's, I find it more interesting when there's a reason why certain people are in power and how power shifts have changed the landscape. Um, perhaps massive plagues and devastation have happened, which cause a shift in the world. And all these things help bring life and richness to the world. Cool. I love the idea of, of world building. It just sounds like so much work. <laughs> it, it's exhausting. Uh, I'm working on my own homebrew camp, uh, homebrew world. I mm. have barely gotten into the creation story of the world. Um, and I've probably worked on it for about 30 hours. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a time consuming hobby. <laughs> it is probably will never play in it, but you know what? It's fun. It'll be good for the, any um, future inspiration, I'm sure, even if yeah. it never does get used. Okay, important question. What does a DM do if they are caught off guard by what the players decide? Roll with it. <laughs> uh, like it's really, uh, Dungeons & Dragons is the ultimate test of improvisation. Um, and so that's where reading something like the Dungeon Master's Guide comes in handy is because it kind of because you've learned and read about how to world build you also get better at improvising and making sure that you can make those split second decisions with while still reflecting on how the world is supposed to work in the story and make sure that whatever rules you've set out in the story, this decision doesn't break those rules. Right. Like I was saying, the only rules that your world has are those that you impose on it yourself. Mm -hmm. And totally. so once you break the rules of your world, then it seems like consequences don't matter. Right. That makes sense. Let's get into the huge subject of characters. Mm -hmm. um, starting from the very beginning, how does somebody... Not the right question. What kind of <laughs> characters are available in a traditional game? Let's start with that. Um, so there are... There's a set number of perhaps what you could call statistic combinations. Okay. So there are three things that make up your character. That is your class, which is what your character does. Cleric, fighter warlock, wizard, barbarian. 
There's your race, which is what you are. Elf, human, gnome, dwarf, halfling. And then there is your background, which is what you did before becoming an adventurer. So those are things like thief, noble, assassin, pirate. And so those kind of form like the word, those give you the words to put on your character sheet. However, there is an infinite way that you can express that as a character. Two people could both be uh, fighting noble humans, which is uh, one of the most common combinations. But so that'd they be can... like a queen who can fight super well. Yeah. Cool. Or you could be like a professional jouster or something like that. Ah, okay. And so those have the same things on paper, mm -hmm. but they're played and they're still very different characters in themselves. So there's an infinite kind of breadth of characters that you can create with um, the options that are provided to you. Yeah. And then the game also gives you the power and guidance on how to make those different things for yourself, how to combine current ones. And then there's lots of other companions that give you supplemental classes, subclasses, races, and things like that. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite type of character to be? I haven't, I have mostly DM, so I haven't played a ton of player characters. Um, I really like, um, I would say my favorite class is a cleric because it is, pro it is i would consider it the most versatile of all the classes okay you can play a damaging cleric a healing cleric a support cleric a tricky cleric a righteous cleric it has a very wide um variety of things that you can do with it um and it's also i don't know i i there's like so many character concepts that I have that I will never get to play. Like one of them is a, and then, cause you can also multi-class. So you don't have to stick with one. Like if you choose cleric at level one, you don't have to stay with cleric. You could say like mm -hmm. take cleric and then a paladin or cleric and a warlock or something like that. Um, and so then you get a little bit of both classes. Yeah. And so one of the ones that I want to play is a, um, a fighter bard that plays the bagpipes, which is basically a Scotsman. Awesome. <laughs> so I think that would be fun. Or one of them is a, uh, a bard that's just like a youth pastor. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I would be fine. Cause like, there's so many characters that are like, Oh, my parents are dead. I grew up on the streets alone and blah, blah, blah. And so like, that's a lot where a lot of people start because you don't want any ties for your dungeon master to destroy. Um, Art. Yeah. And so, but it's fun to have those things where it's like, you know what? I'm just, the character isn't doing it because they have to, they're doing it because they want to. Because mm -hmm. adventuring is a dangerous gig. And yeah. it's, it's not something that someone does lightly, but they're just like, yeah, I think it's fun. <laughs> And doing those kinds of things, changing up your character, mixing and matching their traits and everything must make for an absolutely, completely different experience every time you do a different campaign. 
you're not playing the same like if you have a tried and true character that's cool to see how it works in a different world but you you don't know what it's like to be anybody else mm-hmm. basically yeah i love experimenting mix and matching playing different things but some people like to just play the same thing and i don't know my thing is like it's a game as long as you're having fun go for it <laughs> yeah exactly what's the hardest part about making a character Hmm. Finding enough time to make it. Uh, (laughs) It it does take a long time, but I find that really some of the best characters almost come like, like normal inspiration. Like if it comes to you naturally, like you're just thinking like, Oh, that'd be really fun to do. Um, then I find that those are the best characters as opposed to just like mm-hmm. sitting down and like just slogging through the character creation process just to kind of get it done because you're playing in half an hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How do you decide um, the traits for your character? Um, let me reword this question. How important are the dice in creating your character? <laughs> Uh, it could be very or not very. Um, there are a few ways. There are three official ways of making your character. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. At least for choosing your statistics, Mm -hmm. um, which are the only random things that are involved in character creation. Uh, one of them is the standard array. So you're given a set of six numbers one for each of your statistics, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And so it's, yeah, there's six numbers. Uh, The other way is called a point by system. So you have basically a pool of points that you can put into your character. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you, and then you start with everything at a base of 10, which is the considered average. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you basically spend those points to increase your statistics. As the uh, statistic number gets higher, it costs more points. So it costs more to go from a 15 to a 16 than it does a 10 to an 11. Makes sense. And then there is rolling, which is you take four six-sided dice, roll them, and remove the lowest and then you sum up the rest so if you say rolled a one a three a three and a four you would remove the one and then do three plus three plus four is ten so then you would have a ten in your right. statistic and then there's some hardcore people which is this one guy that i know and he just rolls a d20 and that's the number that he puts down i'm like holy oh, you are a brave babe. man <laughs> <laughs> How many times has he been stuck with the one? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Gosh, that's what I'm going to do next time I join a campaign. Just leave it all to chance. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it could make for a very interesting game, having zero strength and relying solely on your teammates. It has. Uh, that is my current character. I rolled for my statistics and I yeah. got a five in my strength score and basically what that means is that 
any time that I roll my 20-sided dice for any strength-related thing ever, I have to put minus, I have to minus three off of that roll. Ouch. Yeah, so the highest that I can roll is a 17, and I have rolled some negative strength things before. Oh, Did no. not turn out well. <laughs> uh, and that's how you accidentally hit all your teammates with the giant fireball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how important is it to tell the DM what your character's backstory is? Because I know sometimes they'll try to incorporate it in, into the world, or do you never try to do that? It is ex at least personally, and like everyone has their own way of playing the game. Mm -hmm. I find it essential. Whenever I have players, I say, like at level one, whenever you're done making your character, send me your character sheet, send me your backstory. Because I love integrating my players' backstories into the world, and not only as just side quests, but when I'm making my own story, I will try to tag a little bit of each character's backstory into the main quest because mm -hmm. it gives them more, I don't want to say motivation, but it makes it more real for them and it allows them to touch home and give them something to really connect to as players while they're playing. Either right. that or their quest will give them something that will be very helpful in the main quest or in the future. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense too. Hmm. Okay, another big question. What advice do you have for people who want to play but are, um, I guess, overwhelmed by all of this information mm -hmm. that you need to know or are shy about the role-playing aspect? That is an excellent question. And oh. it is, in fact, the question of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, well, if you are have zero experience with the game, have no idea what it's about, I would highly recommend finding a DM that has played. So one of the games, I'm currently in two games right now, one of which I'm a player and the other one I am a dungeon master. And so the one in which I am a dungeon master, our friend Alexi, um, she got together a group of people that had never played before but had always wanted to and asked mm -hmm. me to DM. And so I went through and I was able to teach them all how character creation is made. And I had the experience to be able to stop the game, explain how something was supposed to work, and then continue on and make sure that they... Ha I had the background knowledge to help them go through. Mm. Now for our... I'm not saying that if you have a group of people that have never played before that you can't do it. That's what our other group was. We were all just like at a Christmas party. We're like, you know, it'd be great <laughs> if we all played Dungeons and Dragons. And everyone's like, yeah. And so then <laughs> when I came back after Christmas, I went to the game store, bought some D and D stuff and we started playing and here we are. <laughs> and we taught ourselves how to play. Um, yeah, definitely the starter kit mm -hmm. or the essentials kit are the best way to get into it because it's a low, um, you don't have to spend much money on it because this game can become very expensive. Yeah. If you let it become very expensive and it gives you everything that you need to play and it gives you the opportunity to try it, to see if you like it. And then mm -hmm. 
if you find that you like it, you can start reading. There's tons of resources online to learn how to play, um, including one of the most helpful ones, which is very informative, but in very short bites, is the Critical Role Hand Booker Helper. <laughs> I love uh, that. <laughs> yeah. And so they basically take the player's handbook and describe it in bite-sized little chunks that are very easy to understand. Oh, so it's very so helpful. Cool. Yeah, for rule clarifications and stuff like that. Um, there are subreddits for everything Dungeons and Dragons related. Um, yeah. Awesome Reddit. <laughs> yeah. And what first attracted you to the game at that Christmas party? <laughs> Well, what first attracted me was thinking back to when we had played those like three sessions or whatever in high school mm. and remembering that I had really enjoyed it um, for those three sessions before it got too big and stuff. Yeah. And I, I knew I wanted to try again because I had heard, because most people have heard about it, but really had no concept of what it is and that's what i was like really about a year and a half even though we had played a few years ago i still had no idea what was going on back then in high school i mean who did but uh <laughs> <laughs> and so like i was just like you know i remember that being a good time yeah. like, let's try this again so then i brought it up at our christmas party and everyone else was like yeah so, <laughs> there we are <laughs> yeah i remember our first game i don't know if you had joined yet let me know if you had I know it was a very small group at that point, but the very first game we had to fight this giant evil cat thing. It's yes, like a giant black there. panther. You were there, yeah. but we didn't have any weapons for some reason. So we just had to beat it to death with sticks. And we just kept saying, throw the dwarf, throw the dwarf. And it was like, somehow it was paralyzed and blind and deafened. And we were just like, we can't finish this. Yeah. It, it wouldn't die. And we felt so bad just hitting it with sticks. Yeah. And the dwarf was so mad at us for just constantly throwing him. Yeah, I still have my character sheet from that game. Gosh, that was fun. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Honestly, the fact that that first session, even though it kind of crumbled after that, went so I well. I lost your audio. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, oh now you're back. Sorry. <laughs> Honestly, even though uh, it, that whole campaign kind of crumbled after that first session, the fact that that very first day beating that cat with that stick was so much fun. Like I want to play more just because that's, it's such a good memory and it is so fun because you do get so into it. Yeah, it is. And like, it is very easy to play online now mm -hmm. um, with roll 20 free discord free. Mm -hmm. um, it is, uh, it, it is probably the best time to start. I know that it's commonly right now, is kind of referred to as the renaissance of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Um, fifth, before fifth edition, everything, especially combat, was so much more complicated. Um, and so Wizards of the Coast, who published Dungeons and Dragons, made it their goal with fifth edition to make it easier to understand and quicker to pick up. Okay. Um, and now I can't, say whether or not they accomplished that goal from personal experience. Cause I only started playing with fifth edition. Yeah. But um, 
it it as a hobby has certainly blown up. So I think they've accomplished uh, their goal. But yeah, with Roll Twenty and uh, Discord, it's uh, it's pretty easy to play online. You heard him, folks. Get online, yeah. play some D and D. Stop thinking it's for nerds. It's a really really fun game. It's super fun. And it works your imagination. You'll be so much better off for it. Coming from yeah. somebody who thinks that the world needs a little bit more imagination and fun. So, you know, whatever. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> what do you think is the game's biggest appeal that has let it survive for so long and get better over the years? Hmm. Well, for me, I like the role play aspect mm -hmm. um it's my favorite part uh, like i'm not entirely sure what has kept it going i'll try and think of it while i uh go on my little soapbox for a second sure, get up on uh, that soapbox. <laughs> um my favorite aspect is the role play because it's i mean like i was in theater in high school it's fun to get out of who you are as a person uh, and see what it's like to be someone else or just to interact in ways that you really can't in real life or shouldn't in <laughs> real life, generally speaking. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And then for those of you who are nervous about role playing and that's the thing that's holding you back, you can just be yourself. Like you can literally play a character that is a fantasy version of yourself. You don't have to do a funny voice or act in a certain way. You can just be who you are as a person, act how you would make the decisions that you would when presented with those situations. So, I mean, there are some groups out there I know that mandate funny voices and playing a character that's other than yourself. I and all of the groups that I play with, no, we don't care. If you're, like I was saying, if you're having fun, that's all that matters, whether you're doing a funny voice or not. And in terms of the survivability of the game, I think until now, there has been a small core group of people that are like diehard fans that have played since the 80s and advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And they've just kept with it throughout mm -hmm. their entire life. And then with the emergence of Twitch mainly, um, and people started streaming video games and Comic-Con and nerd culture in primarily movies started to expand, then um, the light of nerd culture began to expand and people, more people began to see some of these hobbies that were early on a little more esoteric, uh, but now we're slowly becoming the mainstream. And then um, I'm not sure what the first Dungeons and Dragons Twitch stream is, but the one that I'm most familiar with, uh, which aired oh, quite a few years ago now, was Critical Role on the Geek and Sundry Twitch channel. Okay. And so for those who don't know, Critical Role is the... I would say probably the most popular Dungeons and Dragons show in the world. Um, it has fans from across the world. And one of the things that I think made it so appealing 
were these people's commitments to their character. So mm -hmm. these, all of the cast members of Critical Role are professional voice actors. Um, you have Matthew Mercer, who's the dungeon master. Uh, he's more, um, he plays McCree in Overwatch and also was Hermes in Blood of Zeus, which is a Netflix show that just came out. And then there's, the cast also includes, in terms of players, um, Laura Bailey, Ashley Johnson, both of which were in The Last of Us 2, playing uh, Ellie and, oh my gosh, I didn't play the game. I, I feel like <laughs> such a bad nerd now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Ellie and Abby. Yeah, I think that's it. I'm sorry. Um, Travis Willingham, Liam O'Brien, Talison Jaffe, and um, oh my goodness. The names are slipping me. Oh, Sam Regal. There we go. <laughs> and so they're all professional voice actors. So they are experienced with becoming characters and doing those voices. And so their commitment to their characters and the story and the level of dedication and immersion that they brought to the game allowed people to see a version of what the game could be. Right. And now I say a version of the game because there is no right or wrong way to play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, for a while, there was a big thing online um, because of Critical Role called the Matthew Mercer effect, where everyone tried to DM like Matthew Mercer and make their games like Critical Role. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have the Reddit post to quote, but Matthew Mercer got wind of this and he fantastic guy um he was really disappointed because he wants people to experience the game how they want to play it and mm -hmm. shouldn't be striving for something so i really appreciate his input on it like that mm -hmm. and so but that and then more and more people started um streaming their dungeons and dragons games and we got to see a wide breadth of a full spectrum of what the game could be in terms of storytelling and characters and all this. And so the popularization of Twitch and these shows really helped in addition with fifth edition helped propel it into uh, the trend that it is today. Yeah. It's amazing how technology helped such a non-technological game come so far. Mm -hmm. like it's just through sharing ideas, which is the whole point of the game anyway, that it, has been allowed to flourish the way it has. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two last questions for you. Uh, number one, what is the best and the worst thing about D&D? The best thing about D&D is when you and your group of friends are faced with what seems like an insurmountable challenge, but are able to look at the numbers and the words on your sheet and come up with a creative solution to the problem that surprises the DM, surprises maybe some of the other people at the table, but everyone rolls with it. The DM handles it well. They let you 
try and go for it, succeed or fail, the narration is on point and the story um, the, and the story just, it has the climactic and cinematic feeling of something that was written at a Hollywood studio purposely yeah. for that effect, but came out of a completely improvised game. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. The, the worst thing about Dungeons and Dragons is um, gatekeepers. And so this is something that happens in all hobbies. Um, but there are a certain portion of people, fortunately, none of the people that I know, who feel that because people didn't start playing in second or third or three, third, 3.5 edition Dungeons and Dragons, that they don't deserve to play or that somehow they're input and opinions and outlook on the game is invalid or something like that. Um, and it, because it one is a detriment to the hobby because mm-hmm. then it prevents new players from coming out and trying it. And two, like uh, it's just mean. Yeah. It's just straight up mean. It's like, it's, it's like, so what if someone thinks that, blah 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 or blah 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 if someone thinks that the numbers should go in which boxes or whatever yeah and it's it's not even practical to to tell people that they have to know the earlier versions of the game when kids are 12 and they start playing well kids who are 12 now were born well after the year 2000 they're not going to know what was going on in the 1980s nor should they care it doesn't matter (laughs) It's like, why did you play second edition? I wasn't alive, man. Come I wasn't on. even close to alive. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like almost fifty years out of the way for some yeah. of these children. So, <laughs> okay, my last question for you: Do you have any great stories about D anD D that you would like to share? Hmm. So many. <laughs> So this is one, um, it was kind of, it was slightly, it was a humorous one. Um, I was trying to think of first boss fights and stuff because they're usually when the epic moments and things like that come out. But this was, my players were on a dungeon crawl and they were attempting to find this, something rumored to be called a living lightning bolt. Ooh. To get to get a sample of it to return it to a magical merchant, uh, so that they could experiment crafting items with it. And so they had they had sailed a number of days to this little out in the middle of nowhere island, um, which supposedly had this thing on it. And they had encountered this puzzle door that was written in draconic. And fortunately, they had a dragonborn, so he spoke draconic because he's sort of dragon (laughs) and they had to fight these fish people in in and out of the water Uh, but and of course so they were all trying to stay on the on land Mm -hmm. because they're like oh we can't breathe but at some point in the fight they had uh gone down in the water 
they're about to like drown, but they took a big breath in and realized that they could actually breathe under the water because it was magically <laughs> enchanted. And so then they started fighting underwater and stuff. So we had to start to think like, okay, this one's at 40 feet deep. This one's 20 feet deep. How do I do all this? And so it ended up that uh, one of the characters had um, fallen unconscious. So in Dungeons and Dragons, when you reach zero hit points, you don't die immediately. You fall unconscious and then you have to make death saving throws, which will, if you fail, if you fail three death saving throws, your character is dead. If you succeed all three, then you are alive with one hit point. <laughs> yeah. And so if you take damage while unconscious, you automatically fail at least one saving throw. Mm. And so one of them had fallen unconscious um, and the enemy was right in front of them. And so the druid had cast this spell, I believe it was ice knife or something like that and had successfully hit um, the creature in front of her friend, uh, killing the creature. But they failed to read in their spell list, or in the spell description, that it also sends out a burst of freezing cold energy in a five-foot radius oh. around the creature that's hit. Yeah. And so they hit the creature, creature died, and then this icy chill crackled out through the water, freezing, encasing, and damaging her ally that had fallen unconscious right in front oh, of no. the thing. And they were too far away to get to them. And so that brought her to her second failed death saving throw. Yeah. So if she had failed one more, her character would have been dead permanently. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately, she had succeeded her next throw and they were able to get back to her, pull her out of the water and give her a healing potion in time. Uh, before she died uh, but yeah that was definitely an intense and funny moment and now all of the characters tease that um, the character Nixie almost killed one of their one of her friends <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and that's working on so many layers even having the figurines wouldn't help you with all that depth what are you going to do to stump them all underneath the table like <laughs> <laughs> It's not that useful anymore. Imagination yeah. is king. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Do you have any final remarks or bits of advice for any listeners? Uh, yeah, for anyone out there, I would highly recommend uh, trying the game, either finding someone who already has some stuff and then you can bum dice and their time off of them. Um, or if you have a group of people that just want to try it, go out, get either the starter or the essential kit. It gives you everything that you need to play. You'll just have to share some dice. And yeah, go out, slay dragons, or befriend dragons, whatever you want. Have fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. This was very fun for me getting back into D&D. &D and I'm sure very informative for people who have never entered the realm before. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Awesome, everybody. That was our episode with Matt Buglis talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Hope you go uh, pick up a book or some dice and even just get into reading some of those Reddit posts about how awesome it is because it is really a fun game. Dispel that myth that it's for nerds. It's for everybody. 
all right have a good week uh take care of yourself go pet a dog or a cat or something and uh we'll see you next time (laughs) 